Hey, 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 thank you for joining us for our Big Time Talker podcast. I'm Burke Allen, live in our Washington, D.C. studios. The show, as always, sponsored by our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. That means if you're a meeting planner and you need a speaker, you can find them at the virtual marketplace there at SpeakerMatch.com. Our guest today does a ton of public speaking. She's based in the New York City area. Lynn Fairweather is the Amazon best-selling author of a book called Stop Signs. And uh, it's uh, some pretty tough stuff, recognizing, avoiding, and escaping abusive relationships. Lynn, thanks for being here today. Um, why did you write this book? That's a great question. Thank you for having me on, Burke. You're welcome. Uh, Stop Signs really was uh, kind of a labor of love. It was not the sort of book that you write to try and make money or get your name out there. It was the sort of book that I wanted people who were experiencing domestic violence to read and people who haven't experienced it yet, but might experience it in their lives so that they could try to prevent that from happening. It's a book that's in three parts. So the first part is about avoiding domestic violence if you've never been involved in that and you're out there in the world trying to meet somebody and you don't want to meet the wrong person. The second part is in relation to um, escaping domestic violence situations that you might be in. And in order to do that, you first have to recognize it. You have to see what's happening to you. And so a lot of the book talks about signs of an abusive relationship or things that you might notice that could be indicators that you are in domestic violence, even if it is not physical. And the last portion is essentially a very long safety plan. It talks about how somebody might safely leave domestic violence and uh, stay safe after they have already left. So you wrote this book over 10 years ago and you've been doing this work since the 1990s. I read up on you. Um, so would you say this is really your life's calling to, to help women get in front of this before it's too late? Absolutely. It is. Uh, you know, I was a survivor of domestic violence. I talk about that in the book. And I also work with currently employers who are trying to help their employees experiencing domestic violence. And so when I was in that situation, I was employed and I didn't feel safe coming forward to my boss and letting them know what was going on. And so it really is my mission to not only help people get out of domestic violence, but also to help their employers understand what kind of support and assistance they need. Lynn Fairweather is our guest today. Her book is Stop Signs. She does lots of domestic violence training. And um, it's it's even hard for me to ask the question, but I got to ask it. Can you can you tell our listeners your own story and, and what brought you to this? Sure. Uh, when I was young, I was about 19 years old, and I had just moved out of my family home. I was away in a different state at college, and I met somebody who I thought was going to be a good friend and turned out to be a little bit more than a friend. We started dating, and at some point, I became in uh, some pretty serious financial straits, like a lot of college students do, and my partner said, hey, I have this big house. Do you want to come live in my house? And I won't charge you rent and you can just stay there. It'll be fun. So this was kind of a hook, which and it which got me into being in a living situation with that person. Right. And he actually did not 
uh, start being physically violent until about a year and a half into the relationship. There were a lot of red flags that I didn't, um, that I saw, but I didn't understand what I was seeing. And then eventually it did turn physical. So um, after a couple, maybe I, about two years of time of dealing with the physical and emotional and verbal and mental and financial abuse, I finally decided that I needed to get out of that situation. Uh, frankly, I was concerned he might kill me. And I asked for some help from family of mine and I was able to leave and actually ended up leaving the state because he would not leave me alone and continue to stalk me after the relationship ended. So I did end up having to move out of state and fortunately uh, that did cease contact. So I did not see him since then. But there were a lot of things that occurred during that situation that if you had asked me a few years before, I would have told you that I would never be involved in that kind of a scenario. Right. I would have said like a lot of women out there uh, and men as well, who are also impacted by domestic abuse, I would have said, that'll never happen to me. I would never let somebody treat me like that. I would just walk away. And I think what I didn't understand is that there are ways that abusers try to make you dependent upon them and they try to keep you in that situation by destroying your self-esteem and making so many problems for you that maybe you can't keep your job or maybe you can't keep the relationships and friendships and connections that you have. And so by the time you realize what's going on, it's really hard to get out. It's kind of like a spider web where you, know, you realize you're stuck when you try to escape. And that isn't something that you might know in the beginning, but through resources like the book that I have and other education, you can learn how to see those signs that I wish now I had seen. You said that um, uh, there was an issue with your employer. How did that all weave into this horrible scenario? And I have to say, I'm, I'm really sorry you went through that. Thank you. Uh, you know, I had an employer who um, I was working at the time, surprisingly, in the domestic violence field. And that's not as uncommon as people might think. Uh, there are a lot of people who are drawn to work in the domestic violence field um, because of personal experiences they've had. And part of the work that we did at the shelter where I was, was to go through police reports. And we would try to contact the victims who had been involved in abuse and try to see if we could help them. Right. And one day my boss, the supervisor of the shelter, came up to me and uh, she had one of those reports in her hand and it had my name on it. And she said, what is this? <laughs> and the way she said it really kind of made me feel like I can't admit what's happening here because I'm afraid that she might think I'm stupid or I make bad decisions or I'm incompetent or she might think I'm a hypocrite because here I am trying to tell other people they need to leave domestic violence and I'm going home to it every day. So I felt really uncomfortable and I did what a lot of employees do when confronted by their employer. I backpedaled, I denied everything. I said, oh, it actually wasn't a big deal. I minimized it, I made excuses for him. I said, oh, it only happened because he was intoxicated. He apologized, it'll never happen again. And, um, you know, they, they didn't actually follow up on that, surprisingly. And I think that a lot of employers don't understand how to identify people who might be experiencing abuse, 
because for most of them, it's not going to be as obvious as a police report. Right. And then once they do know, they're really uncomfortable talking with them about it. They don't know how to respond in a sensitive, effective way or how they can help that person. So I try to help them understand what they can do, how to put it in such a way that the victim is comfortable and how to assist them and support them without telling them what to do, just offering them resources and support. You're right about that. I, you just heard me say I was uncomfortable asking you to tell your own story, which because of what you do for a living and you've been at this since the 90s, I'm sure you've told thousands of times. But for me, I, it was hard to bring it up in conversation. Is that um, is that a big part of why this is so tough to eradicate in the world? Because it's it's sort of taboo to talk about, you think? 100%. One of the things I do when I speak to a group live is I ask people to raise their hands if they know someone who has been involved in domestic violence, either themselves or somebody they know. And a good portion of the room will raise their hand. But what I say to the people who haven't is that you probably do know somebody who's been involved in domestic violence. You just haven't heard it from them and they just haven't felt comfortable enough to tell you about it. Right. You know, statistically, we see about one in three women who are victims of some kind of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse during their lifetime. Wow. And about one in seven men. And we look around at the people that we know, the people we work with, and we can say, you know, I don't really know that many people that went through this, but you do. And unfortunately, they don't feel comfortable because of some of the stigma that society has against victims of abuse. There One out of three. Wow. That, you know, yeah, there's a lot of beliefs that are erroneous. Some people believe that victims bring it on themselves, or if it was really bad, they would just leave. Or people only abuse because they're mentally ill or they have substance abuse problems. So the education that I provide is really important for people to understand what's really happening. And by the way, Lynn, you know, is not just an expert on this, you know, in reading up on you, you have a master's in social work. You've been at this for a long time. 30 years. Is that right? 30 years. Wow, wow, wow. Um, You talked about signs, warning signs, that people, uh, women, and men, in some cases, as you said, one in seven men go through this, that that we look past. And these are signs that are not obvious. You know, uh, people are not necessarily right out of central casting. And and you say, you write that intelligent women, it blows right past them. Um, you were very young when this happened to you. So, okay, maybe you didn't have the life experience to spot some of these things right off the giddy up. But what are some of these signs that that women totally miss that could, if they saw them in advance, could avoid a whole world of hurt later? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. And, you know, people sometimes do see these signs, but they don't know how to interpret them. Okay. So initially, when somebody who is abusive meets you, they're going to be looking for certain things. And a lot of times I run into women who have been victims of domestic violence and they say something like, I have a broken picker. I always choose the worst people. My picker's busted. Yeah, exactly. And what I try to tell them is you're not picking them. They're picking you. And the reason that they're doing it is not because you're stupid or because you're gullible 
or because you are someone who's worthy of abuse, it's because you have certain qualities that they are looking for to take advantage of. So for example, if somebody is very kind, they're very forgiving, they want to help people, they are nurturing, um, they're somebody who's trusting. Those are good qualities when they are given to the right people, but an abuser will take advantage of those and turn them around and use them against you. So one of the first things that somebody might see is this boundary probing, this testing that I talk about in the book, where an abuser will try to see how far they can push you on certain things. So maybe they will start by wanting to make decisions about where you guys go on a date, what you do. They might start criticizing you and telling you they don't like what you're wearing or that your friends are people who are bad influence on you or um, you know, trying to put these divisions between you and your support system. Then they might, once they realize that this is something they can do, they might step out a little further. So they could uh, try to belittle you and call you names, or they could try to uh, start being jealous and possessive over you, trying to read your messages or look through your phone or your computer and trying to see who you've been talking to. Uh, they could start telling you where to go, who to hang out with, um, again, like what to wear or how to look or act. And once they realize that they've got control over you, then that's when the abuse usually starts, the real violent part of the abuse. Some people don't ever experience violence. It's just an emotional, mental, verbal, financial type of abuse. But a lot of people do experience violence and it can start out as a light shove or grabbing somebody or um, you know, maybe giving them a, a small smack in the face. And then it can turn into real serious abuse that can result in um, very serious injuries or even death. There are about 2000 domestic homicides each year in the United States alone. So unfortunately, people are in experiences where, again, they don't know how to get out of it. And they find that when they do try and escape, that ushers in the most dangerous period of violence because abusers are all, are all about power and control. And when they lose that power and control, they're gonna go to desperate lengths to get it back. How far down that whole rabbit hole of badness did it get for you before the light bulb went off? Or, or is it, maybe that's not the right question. Maybe it's not a light bulb moment. Maybe it's just a gradual, wow, this is getting worse and worse and worse. And then there's the straw that breaks the camel's back. But how bad did it have to get for you personally before you said, I got to make a change? I definitely had injuries, um, broken bones, bruises. And, um, did you say broken bones? Yes. Um, and I did... I did at some point fear that I might lose my life because he started making threats to me about potentially killing me. And I knew that he was capable of that. And so I felt that at that time, it was incredibly important for me to get out. Did you grow up in, uh, well, let me just ask you, what was, what was the, the mother father dynamic like when you were growing up? Did you see any of this kind of stuff happening in or around you? As a kid? No, I did not. I did not grow up in domestic violence. My father is a police officer and my mother is a priest. And so I did not um, experience that growing up. But 
it doesn't really matter if somebody did or not. I mean, absolutely growing up in domestic violence can increase your chances of being either a victim of abuse or an abuser, but it's not a necessity. Um, sometimes people who like myself did not grow up in that kind of environment um, have not experienced that before. And so it comes as a surprise to them. Kind of blindsides you a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think in many ways, society primes women for abusive situations when they tell us things like, you're supposed to be um, quiet, you're supposed to be gentle, you're supposed to do what your partner tells you to do, or you're supposed to um, find somebody and stay with them no matter what and make it work and stand by your man kind of a thing. Right. I believe that it uh, gives us a lot of ideas about what a relationship is supposed to be. That if somebody's jealous, that means they love you. Or these romantic comedies where somebody is mean to somebody else and then they apologize and they get together and live happily ever after. There's a lot of messages we get that I think put us in a position where abuse is more likely to happen. You talked about you were sort of sucked in in part because uh, you didn't have any money. You're a college student and then you said, hey, move in with me and I, I got your back on this. Mm -hmm. I would think that, and maybe I'm wrong, that that probably is one of the leading uh, early indicators that that someone could really take advantage of you if if you start to commingle the money or the other person, you know, has that financial power over you. Yeah, it's a huge barrier to escaping domestic violence. Right. A lot of people wonder if somebody was in something this bad, why don't they just leave? That's probably the most common question I get from people who don't really understand this issue. And what they don't understand about it is that there is a whole brick wall in front of that victim and each brick is something a little different. So it could be that you're afraid of the abuser. The abuser said, if you ever leave me or break up with me, I'll kill you or I'll hurt your family. Sure. Uh, you may be in a situation where you financially can't support yourself, especially if you have children. You might think that those kids need their parent in their life and even an abusive parent is better than an absent parent, you might believe that you, um, after hearing for so many years that you are stupid, you're worthless, you can't do anything on your own, you might start to believe it and you might start to feel like you can't make it. There could be legal issues, there could be um, other types of things that are you know, religious issues or family pressures or right. a whole host of things that are standing in your way. Nobody wants to remain in domestic violence. It's just that getting out is a lot easier said than done. So I've got to ask you, and then we'll stop talking about you. We'll talk about the issue more. I'm fascinated by the, the fact that your, your dad was a police officer, your mom was a priest. So what happens when you tell your dad, the cop, that this is going on or when he finds out? And, and why was this guy not scared to death of your dad being a police officer? Well, we were 1,500 miles away from where my father lived and worked. Got it. And so he didn't uh, see him or know him. Um, but, you know, for a lot of the portion of time that this was going on, I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anybody. Were you ashamed? They, absolutely. Um, you know, they uh, did not know about what was happening and nobody really knew about what was happening until I got to the point where I had to get out and I called and asked them to help me get out. 
Um, Lynn Fairweather is our guest today. The book is Stop Signs, Recognizing, Avoiding, and Escaping Abusive Relationships. Uh, you can find Lynn online at uh, presagetraining.com. The book is everywhere. It's an Amazon bestseller and uh, one of the Bibles in in that world to uh, to help women get in front of things. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the concept that, well, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. When someone says to you, um, or, or maybe they have said to this uh, to you, you know, you say this stuff and you're going to make women distrust all men, that would be a pretty valid thing. I'm amazed that you personally can even have a conversation with me right now and not look at every guy with a side eye. So if if you go through something like this, and whether you're a woman or a man, how do you kind of get past that distrust of the opposite sex and realize that everybody's not that way? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And not everybody is that way. And I'm well aware that there are many people out there who are wonderful, warm, loving people who would never abuse their partner. It's just that the ones who do are relatively common. Um, one of the statistics I had cited in the book was that if you are a 30-year-old single woman of middle income and you are dating and looking for a partner, your chances of running into an abuser are around 40%. So the people who are going to commit domestic violence are out there looking for partners, just like the rest of the people. And it's up to us to learn those signs and try and figure out um, how we might be able to recognize that early on. So I am more cautious in my uh, friendships, my relationships, the people I associate with because of what I've experienced. But I think that people should have a healthy dose of mistrust. I think they shouldn't go into things giving people the benefit of the doubt and saying, I'm going to trust this person until they give me a reason not to. Instead, you should say, I'm going to kind of keep my guard up until they give me reasons to trust them and to believe that they are somebody who is going to be safe and a good partner. In your heart of hearts, um, because you've seen so much bad stuff, do you believe that most people are intrinsically good? I do. Okay. But I also believe that there are a lot of problems that are in people's lives that may cause them to act in ways that they are not aware are damaging to others or they don't feel like they um, are somebody who can have normal relationships. Right. But the causes of domestic violence are myriad. There are a lot of different reasons why somebody might be an abuser, but we know that some of the reasons that are not true are, you know, if somebody is, say, intoxicated and they abuse, um, somebody might think, well, they wouldn't do that if they were sober. But there true, is a, huh? uh, there's a Latin saying that is uh, in vino veritas. It means in wine, there is truth. And what that means is that if you become intoxicated, you let down your inhibitions and you become the person that you truly are. So sometimes people are you know, uh, what you call a happy drunk, right? They're friendly, they're laughing. Um, yeah. other people are sad. You might see them crying. Maybe that's somebody who's depressed in their life. Somebody who gets belligerent and angry when they're drinking is somebody who is a person who has a lot of pain inside and they don't know how to handle that and get it out and relate to others. So we have to look at the things we're seeing and ask ourselves, is this really who this person is? And what do I need to do in response to that? 
often people who have been abused as kids turn into abusers because that's how they've been taught to relate to other people. And it doesn't mean that they can't change, but they have to want to change. They have to want to do something about that and to work on themselves. I would think with kids, and, and you certainly know this much better than I do, that they're going to see that and one of two things is going to happen. They're going to fall into that world or it's going to be so repulsive to them, they're going to go completely in the other direction. Absolutely. And that's what I hear from most people who grew up in domestic violence. They either decided that they were going to stop that cycle, they were going to be the last person and weren't going to put that on anybody else, or it's the opposite, where people have been hurt by others, and so all they know is to respond with hurt of their own. So, Lynn, you get asked to do interviews like this a lot, and you're on TV and on the radio to weigh in on these things. When when you see a high-profile case of um, domestic abuse, um, for example, the R. Kelly case, um, how early in do you looking at it from the outside because you know you don't know R. Kelly and uh, presumably and you don't know the women involved but how quickly can you determine what's going on there and and how do you make sure that that you don't you know misinterpret what you see just based on the coverage well it's absolutely true that the media does skew coverage sometimes um but you know when you have multiple victims accusers coming forward and saying that this has happened to them and there are commonalities that run through all of their stories, then you start to believe that it's likely that that is happening. Sometimes people who are famous and wealthy do get a sense of entitlement. They believe that they can do whatever they want and yep. their head swells up, right? And they think that they are above other people. So those individuals do sometimes become involved in abusive behaviors and uh, there's no one really around to check them. They are surrounded by yes people and nobody's going to give them the information they need to understand, hey, what you're doing is wrong and it's really hurting a lot of people. You need to change your behavior. I've seen that up close. We work with a lot of celebrity clients and if that celebrity all day long is hearing, you're great, you're great, you're great, you're great, pretty soon you kind of begin to buy into all that press. Um, when When you see the Bill Cosby trial or the Harvey Weinstein trial, or Jeffrey Epstein. Sadly, I could like go on and on off the top of my head. There's so much of that out there. Gabby Petito. Um, how quickly in do you form an opinion? And also, Lynn, how tough is it for you to not um, immediately sort of judge the guy? Or is that even possible? I mean, can you give somebody a benefit of a doubt? So how does that work in your mind as somebody who's been around this for 30 years now? I do believe that we should let the process play out in court. So okay. if there is a case where somebody's being accused of a crime and they've been arrested. I do absolutely believe in the principle of our law, which says you're innocent until proven guilty. We should allow that to play out. But unfortunately, sometimes we see abusers escaping justice. People who are particularly rich and powerful can go ahead and make those situations go away, or they can intimidate victims um, into not speaking. And so uh, a lot of times there are reasons that they don't get convicted that doesn't mean they didn't do it, right? But we want to go ahead and let the process play out, let all the voices be heard, and then make our decisions. 
Uh, as part of the training that I have done for threat assessment and management, I've learned deception detection. So I've learned a little bit about body language and how to determine whether somebody's being truthful or not. Okay. And sometimes there are things that people say and do that indicate that they're not being truthful. And you hear victims tell their stories and there are indications that they are. It is actually incredibly rare that somebody would come forward with an allegation that is false. Um, when people accuse another person of assault or abuse, sexual, physical, it's really unlikely that they're going to lie about that because of the scrutiny that they are put under and the uh, flack that they receive for that. There are many victims in these high profile cases who have had their lives threatened because of what they've said. And so nobody give me a couple of those tells too. that you mentioned. It's it. I don't want to play poker with you because clearly you're you're able to pick up on that stuff. But but when you um, you see someone in, in terms of body language or or something they might say, what are a couple of breadcrumbs that that you've picked up on that are pretty common that you now throw out in in the threat assessment training you do with with women. Well, uh, remember the old saying of uh, speak no evil, hear no evil, see no yeah. evil. Yeah, yeah sure. Well, sometimes when people are being untruthful, they will do things with their body language that indicates that. So for example, they might be telling a lie while they are scratching their ear or while their hand is in front of their mouth or while they're looking down at the floor. And that sort of indicates that there is this... Um, sense inside them that what they're saying is wrong, but they don't want to reveal that. And sometimes they subconsciously are making expressions or body movements that would indicate that. Uh, very often people who are lying know that you want them to look you in the eye. So they might do that, but sometimes they will glance down and to the left before they uh, say something that isn't true, or yeah. they will look up in to the ceiling or to the top of the wall because it's almost like they're searching for the proper answer. Um, people who don't answer your question directly might not be telling the truth. So if you say, where were you? And instead of telling you where they were, they start telling you about something they saw while they were driving, then that is maybe an indicator that they're struggling to find a plausible explanation. In today's world, uh, you know, it's changed a lot since I was younger, and, and even since you were younger, this this huge prevalence of internet dating now. And so is part of the training that you offer to people uh, something that might give them, you know, a, a bag of tools to take with them uh, on a first date with somebody that they've met online at one of these social media apps? Uh, is that something you can help with? Absolutely. The book Stop Signs is a toolbox in itself. So there are in there questions that you should ask about the person that you're meeting, questions you can ask to them and about them. There are ways that you can test and prime them while they are testing you. So you can look for certain things, you can set up certain situations and see how they respond. And there are personality traits, characteristics, that you can be looking for that will help you to understand who that individual is. Sometimes people will say that they met someone and that person was great in the beginning and then they changed. What they're really seeing is that that person has revealed who they truly are. 
Right. Everybody puts their first, their best foot forward, right? When you're dating someone, you first meet them for the first six months, everyone's trying to impress the other person. They're all trying to look like they're great. And after a while, an abuser has a hard time keeping up that facade. Their mask will start to fall away. So what you're seeing is not a change. It is the, the revealing of who they truly are. And so some of the things that I put in the book are ways that you can find out who somebody truly is before you have to find out the hard way. You see people like um, uh, Army Hammer, you know, the actor who was accused of these awful, awful things. Um, and you look at the guy and, and the guy, you know, clearly could be a male model. He's the leading man in Hollywood. Do, do guys, and this is a generalization, so you may not have a great answer for this. Do guys that have that sort of, uh, you know, physicality about them that are just so damn good looking that, that they get a free pass from women. Do they tend to, um, do you see a higher percentage of, of those guys that, that uh, are abusive? No, I don't think so. I think an abuser can look like anyone. Okay. Uh, we That's a, another one of those stories that our culture, our society tells us, I think that puts us at risk because we are told that somebody who is um, looks like a criminal or looks scary is more right. likely to be scary and somebody who doesn't is not. It starts with that stranger danger that we learn when we're little kids. Yeah. And we need to look past that and see that sometimes people who look perfect on the outside are actually abusers. And then people who look like they are not perfect are on the inside, truly good people. So we can't judge books by their covers, either for the positive or for the negative. There were a lot of predictions um, when the lockdowns happened at the beginning of COVID that we were gonna see these huge increases in domestic violence because people suddenly are stuck together for longer periods of time and, and there's not as many escape hatches. I'm sure you followed that pretty closely. Did that play out that way? What, did it get worse during the lockdowns as was predicted? Absolutely. Oh. Depending on where you were in the world, domestic violence increased anywhere from about uh, 12 to 15% to 125%. Wow. And part of the reasons for that was not only that people were stuck inside with their abusers and there was a lot of uh, national sort of strife, financial problems, fear, but also because a lot of the resources they normally would have turned to were no longer there. So police were only responding to life-threatening emergencies. Domestic violence shelters or counseling centers may have been closed down. Uh, places where people could go to uh, seek help or even just to get away from their abuser, like their workplace, were shut down. And so a lot of the ways that somebody could seek support or seek help were no longer available to them. And for that reason, many people ended up being hurt or killed in situations where they just could not escape and they could not seek the kind of support and assistance they required. You obviously went through a horribly traumatic experience. You had broken bones and and who knows what else, you know, and I have talked to women who, you know, were lucky to get out of these situations alive, but there's a whole other category of, of verbal abuse. And it's gotten a lot more attention, I think, in the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years. But to break it down for people who are listening right now, in your expert opinion, could you sort of sketch out the difference 
between true verbal abuse and sort of that run-of-the-mill argument that that many you know couples have probably every couple has mm -hmm. uh, yes arguing is certainly a normal part of a relationship right but when it crosses over into abuse there are certain things you might see and even just discounting the physical part of it so say we're just talking about verbal and emotional abuse it's okay for you to say to me i don't like uh, what you said or i don't like what you did but for you to assign um, a particular identity to me because of that or to start name calling and saying really horrible things um, as a result of you not know, liking that is bordering on abuse. Um, when people are talking about, you know, you did this and you did that, as opposed to being assertive, making I statements like I feel this way when you say that, it, it shows that they are really not, they don't have a lot of accountability. So they don't want to take any part in what's happening. They just want to blame the other person. Somebody who is threatening to you or somebody who uh, says things that make you feel bad about yourself, say they're uh, criticizing your physical appearance or something else that you really can't change or that you just haven't changed yet, that can also be very hurtful to people. And um, whenever somebody is trying to own you and tell you what to do, tell you who to talk to, where to go, what to wear, that is abusive. That is not a normal way of interacting with your partner. Lynn Fairweather is the author of the bestseller Stop Signs, Recognizing, Avoiding, and Escaping Abusive Relationships. Um, and Lynn, you say that in the book that most abusers display these warning signs and intelligent women miss them totally because the majority of women have never been trained to recognize them. To put the shoe on the other foot, though, uh, for the guys who, uh, the folks who have the plumbing like I do, um, although you focus on dangerous men, this sometimes there are, there are dangerous women out there too. So talk to me about what you've seen in that world and how that dynamic is different when, when a guy is in uh, an abusive relationship. You are absolutely correct that women can be abusers as well. And also people in LGBTQ relationships can sure. be abused by one another. And we do see many of the same traits and tactics so the signs that you would see uh, in a male abuser are going to be present in a female abuser as well. The one difference that we mainly see is in the type of abuse that's happening. So people generally accept the fact that most women are physically smaller uh, and less strong than their male partners. And so right. when we do see physical violence, we see more severe injurious, frequent abuse. So the men that are abused may have experiences where, I mean, they certainly may have an experience where they're severely abused or injured, but many of them will have an experience where they were struck by their partner, but they didn't have any injury. Um, maybe that person, you know, scratched them or pushed them. Um, and that is a little different than when somebody assaults another person who is smaller than them and inflicts severe injury upon them. We also see that male partners kill their female partners much more frequently than female partners kill male partners. So the lethality of that type of abuse is more prominent. 
Um, we do see that men, as a result of what society has told them they are supposed to be or do or think, sometimes do have a sense of possessiveness over women or a sense of dominance or superiority. And that can be used against women in a way that women cannot turn around and use that against men because there has not been that historic oppression of men by women. Right. So a lot of those things play into the fact that it can sometimes be a different picture, even though it is still absolutely abuse. And men who are abused by their partners have every right to be safe and to find a, a life away from that. So there's a lot of organizations out there that can help male victims of abuse and can help them to stay safe emotionally, physically, et cetera. It's a shame we have to talk about this at all. Um, the book is Stop Signs. I'm glad that you wrote it. Um, I hate that you had to go through what you went through to, to make this your life's work. When, when you finally did get away from this guy, um, I hope that you went on to uh, another much better relationship or a series of those. And this may not be exactly your area of expertise, but I'm going to ask you, since you did go through it on your own, how do you move past something like that and, and not, you know, sort of be walking on eggshells with every relationship after that? Yeah, the healing experience is unique to everybody. How did you do so it? They would have to go through uh, whatever it is that they need to move through. Sometimes it's about reckoning their past and how that or their upbringing and how that may have contributed to this situation. Sometimes it is about looking at things in themselves that they need to strengthen and improve. Sometimes it's about getting therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder or for other impacts of that abuse and learning how to be self-sufficient, understanding that you can protect yourself, you can trust your own judgment. I think that's a problem for a lot of people who were involved in domestic abuse because they feel like they made a bad choice or they didn't see the signs and how can they trust their own judgment again? So you have to learn how to do that. And therapy is very helpful, particularly if it is with a therapist who understands the dynamics of domestic violence. Yeah. and what people go through when they experience it. What uh, what worked best for you with the next guy that came along? Well, I did go ahead and put a lot of space and time into that relationship before committing myself to it. So if you give somebody a lot of time to show their true colors, then you'll see what those colors are. Right. In my next relationship, I waited quite a long time. I, When I met my former husband, I was dating him for about four or five years before I agreed to marry him because I wanted to make sure that the person I was seeing was the person that I was going to end up with. So I think that that is important for people to look at and to understand that the faster you involve yourself in a relationship, the more likely you are to blow past those signs. Sure. Abusers will do things to try and have an instant commitment. Like they'll start telling you early on that they love you and they want to be with you, or they might ask you to move in with them or marry them three months, five months after you met them. And that is on purpose because they want to get you committed. They want to get that cement drying around your feet before right. you 
find out who they really are. And so one of the ways that people can protect themselves is to put a lot of time and space into their relationships. If that person is the one you're meant to be with, then it doesn't matter how long you wait. They're still going to be that person. They're still going to be the one. So there's no harm in taking your time to get to know somebody. Yeah, don't jump into it. That makes perfect sense. I wonder if if the guy that you dated and for four or five years went on to be your husband, do you think you were harder on him um, because of what you just went through? It'd be almost impossible not to be, right? Well, he was a very different person than the person who was the abuser. Right. And so I was able to feel more comfortable and feel safe and feel like I could be myself and feel like the person that I was seeing was truly who they were. One more question. Um, I guarantee you that someone listening to this podcast right now from somewhere is involved in, uh, especially after I heard those statistics, which blow my mind, an abusive relationship. What would you tell that person who's listening right now that needs some help and, and has no idea what to do or where to go? What I would tell them to do is to contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That is 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E. And that hotline is 24 hours a day. It is confidential, so you don't even have to say your name. And it is staffed by professionals who will help you to make a plan. Now, maybe you're not ready to leave the relationship yet, and that's okay because their job isn't to tell you to leave. Their job is to give you options and to give you resources and ideas. So I would ask those people who are in domestic violence relationships where they don't feel safe with their partner and they don't feel comfortable or like it's a healthy situation to reach out to that hotline. Once again, that's 1-800-799-SAFE and to talk with an advocate. Let them know what's happening and they can give you some choices. They can give you some options. They can safety plan with you. They can give you referrals and support and help you to understand what you're really in and how to get out of it safely. Lynn, thanks for the great advice. And thank you for the great work you do. That's Lynn Fairweather. The book is Stop Signs. It's a sobering look at just how much of that is out there. But the upside is Lynn has some great advice on how you can turn things around. Uh, you can find her online. The website is presagetraining.com, P-R-E-S-A-G-E training.com. Lynn Fairweather, uh, speaker and best-selling author, our guest today. We drop new episodes of the Big Time Talker podcast every Tuesday. They're on all the platforms, Spotify, iHeartMedia, uh, Apple, iTunes. If you like what you hear, Tell a friend, and uh, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being there. Thanks to our guest, Lynn Fairweather. I'm Burke Allen. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.